This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, on this week's show, I'll be talking all about anxiety with counselling psychologist and anxiety expert, Dr. Rachel Allen. In particular, we'll be discussing how we can help someone who has anxiety by becoming better listeners, supporting them when they try and make a change, and how to look after our own mental well-being in the process. Rachel's new book, How to Help Someone with Anxiety, looks at just that. It's a practical guide to help you be there for your loved one while giving you confidence as they navigate their journey. Dr. Rachel Allen, welcome to the show. How's it going? Good morning, Carl. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So first and foremost, where are you from? Where is that lovely accent from? <laughs> well, I, I live in Glasgow. I've lived in Glasgow, Scotland for nearly 19 years, but I'm originally from the Isle of Lewis, which is in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. Amazing. Secretly on my book list of places I want to go up the Isle of Skye, all that neck of the woods. I've never been there. So uh, it's on my, on my list of places to go. But however, let's get cracking. Tell us all about anxiety. First of all, I suppose, what is it? Do you know, anxiety is, it's a funny thing because when we talk about anxiety, it tends to come under that guise of mental health. And I think that's a bit of a misnomer sometimes when we talk about anxiety and, and lots of emotions, because of course, Really, anxiety is partly, um, obviously, uh, a mental response, but it's so much in our bodies. Anxiety has one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to keep us all safe, to protect us, to tune us in to when there might be a threat in our environment or something around us that could compromise our safety and make us need to act fast. So anxiety is a physiological response. It's when we the brain detects, oh, that's something in my environment that might threaten my well-being, might threaten my survival. I need to act fast. And then it is a physiological response, a very, very rapid one, that then prepares us to act in order to keep ourselves safe. So at the very base of it, that's anxiety. That's different, probably, to how most of us think about anxiety. Because, of course, in our day-to-day -day lives, Anxiety for many of us, for myself, probably for yourself, Carl, for many of the people I work with in, in my clinical work, can be a really distressing, at times debilitating, relentless experience that can feel like it holds us back. It can feel like it's something we have to deal with. It can feel like it's something we really want to get rid of. Um, and that's Usually when we think about how do we help ourselves with anxiety, how do we help someone else with anxiety, that tends to be the form that, that most people mean. And is it fair to say that over the course of the last year and a half that people who may be prone to anxiety or even people who haven't have been challenged more than ever before? With a global pandemic, surely we're more anxious than we've ever been. Oh gosh, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I mean, it goes back to what I said, anxiety is about survival. Um, but one of the things that we really like as human beings, um, or as, as animals too, one thing that we really like 
to kind of um, feel in control and not feel anxious is a sense of predictability, a sense of control. So my goodness, the pandemic has really played to our vulnerabilities in terms of anxiety. You know, if you think about it, on the one hand, we've got the illness itself, which brings up anxiety around, gosh, am I going to get sick? Am I going to get seriously ill? Am I going to have you know, people I care about get seriously ill or pass away? Many, many people having to face the reality of that, the tragedy of that, and the, 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 you know, the awful scenarios um, that many people have had to face. In addition to that, we've had all the stuff that's happened around the pandemic, lockdowns, change in employment, massive changes in how we live our lives, distance from our loved ones and so on. And with all that, of course, has come unpredictability and change because we don't really know what's what's going to happen or how things are going to unfold. We're constantly waiting for news, for updates and so on. So my goodness, you take those two factors and everything else around the pandemic and talk about the kind of perfect storm to supercharge any pre-existing anxiety, or as I'm hearing a lot of, to tip someone who previously wouldn't have said they were a particularly anxious person into times of feeling really anxious and feeling that that loss of control. And of course, there are different types of anxiety. Maybe let's chat through them and some tips for for each different type or how people can, you know, get, to help them overcome it, to help them get over it. So in the book, I I talk quite a bit about how it's not uncommon for for us to kind of want to label our experience. And when it comes to mental health, there's there's a lot around that, isn't it? You know, we all use sort of terms quite colloquially to, to describe certain um certain things that happen for us, you know, we might say, Oh, I'm having a panic attack or oh that's my OCD. And we use those sort of in everyday language. And I think that's that's the real power of some of those terms is that it can actually be a really useful kind of empowering shorthand to say, I have this kind of experience or sometimes I feel a bit like that. And it can help us form connections with other people who might say, oh, yeah, you know, I get a bit a bit like that too. Um, the really important thing is, particularly when we're thinking about helping someone with anxieties, that we make sure that if we're going to use terminology to try and summarize someone else's experience or to try and describe someone else's experience, we've got to make sure that that terminology fits for them. Because what we really don't want to do is say, oh, I think I kind of know what, say for the sake of the argument, I think I kind of know what social anxiety looks like. And I think that you kind of have traits of that. I think you're a bit shy and I've noticed you get a bit nervous when you speak. So I'm going to say to you, oh, I want to help you with your social anxiety. We really can't do that. But at the same time, if you want to get alongside someone, help someone, empower someone who's struggling, and they say to you, I have, you know, have these kinds of difficulties or I have these kind of experiences. And, you know, for me, that's that's what I call social anxiety. By all means, the important thing is that the terminology we use is meaningful for us and meaningful for anyone else we're trying to help. Okay, and again, the world's slightly returning to normal. First of all, that social anxiety is something a very common thing that so many of our listeners will be going through because we haven't been around people uh, in, a, in, a, in, in any setting, really, for such a long time. So it's quite normal to feel a bit anxious and a bit nervous when going back out into the world to meet people and to socialise. Oh, absolutely, because I think one of the, one of the things that sort of lockdown and social distancing and... and all that sort of thing that we've 
been through has has made me appreciate you know personally is that in our so-called normal lives if, if we're you know if we're out and about we're maybe working in a busy environment maybe you're um you know seeing family often not even just used to having you know the odd visitor to the house but our kind of our baseline or our threshold for what's normal gives us a certain degree of tolerance you know you can, you're kind of like it's kind of no big deal. It's just it's just life and the kind of stuff we do in autopilot. And when the exposure to that kind of stuff, whatever goes on for us in our daily lives, when that reduces vastly, as it has for so many of us, suddenly our tolerance for things that previously were completely everyday sort of occurrences has absolutely plummeted. So now, you know, previously I might have thought, say for example, I'm someone who, you know, commute takes a, a commuter train into a busy city centre and I've done that you know every day for 10 years and I get on a jam-packed train and I buy my lunch and I pick up my coffee and I chat to many colleagues and I sit in a busy meeting. Now going back to that after being at home for a year and a half our tolerance for that has come down so much that those things that before were just kind of everyday sort of norm now feels like a massive deal and I'm hearing so many people kind of panicking about that a little bit or saying, oh, God, you know, what does this mean? What's happened to me? And actually all that's happened is that our tolerance for that kind of stimulation, those kinds of interactions and the kind of anxiety that might go with it has completely reduced because we've not been exposed to it for, for so long, you know. And so tolerance builds back up. So is, is it literally that easing yourself back into that social environment and over the course of time, a couple of weeks, months, that it just becomes normal again and we readjust automatically? Easing yourself back in. That's the name of the game, Carl, because if, if we try and or if we expect ourselves, if we place that expectation on ourselves, well, I need to I need to be back you know, living my life as I did before, I need to be um, doing all that without anxiety, we're probably setting ourselves up to have a really difficult experience. Because actually, tolerance, as we all know, in, in any domain of learning or health and anything else, is something that we build gradually. So easing back in is the name of the game, doing a little bit more. So our tolerance builds a bit, we get a bit more confident, so we're able to do a little bit more. So then tolerance builds again, able to feel a bit more confident and we do a bit more. So bit by bit, building on it just gradually so that eventually things that feel really overwhelming just now or things that feel like, gosh, I don't know how I'm ever going to cope with that again. We will get there again. But gradual and building bit by bit is the name of the game. And another element of the world that is, I'm sure is making people anxious is the, the, that bigger picture, the COVID-19, the pandemic, the numbers, uh, certainly here in Ireland every evening, we get the numbers at about six o'clock and people go, it just throws people, if they're, um, you know, we're, we're experiencing a surge currently, it tends to throw people. Are there any tips or tools to reduce that? Presumably, I know, you know, one that we read all the time is about controlling your controllables and focusing on things that you can actually make a difference to and that you can control. Does that work for people? And are there any other tips that we can help people with? It's interesting you, you mentioned that, controlling the, the controllables. That's huge. Um, right back at the very beginning of the pandemic, it feels like a lifetime ago now, I was kind of, was at that time sort of, 
February, March 2020, when we were all starting to realize, oh gosh, something big is happening here on all our lives really might change because of this. And I was sort of starting to think, you know, I was starting to see for myself and recognize in myself and those close to me that anxiety was building. And I was thinking, oh, you know, is there something I can contribute? Is there and some tiny, minuscule thing that I can do that might give a bit of relief or a bit of support somewhere? So I, I recorded this uh, video, I put it out on social media, and it was about that very thing, about how to get through this, focusing on what we can control is a massive, massive part of just keeping ourselves on that level because it's so easy to engage with all the what-ifs and all the bits that we don't know and all the fear and so much noise around us and get completely caught up in that. And of course, when we engage with that, going back to what I was saying about the physiology of anxiety, our bodies are having this fear response all the time. Whereas if we can consciously select to focus on what we can actually influence for ourselves, okay, that doesn't solve everything. But it might mean, certainly in terms of anxiety, that we're able to stop our anxiety completely escalating and snowballing to the point that we can't bring it back. So for me, I always ask that question. I ask myself that question all the time when my anxiety spirals and threatens to take myself over. I ask myself that question, okay, what element of this, if any, can I influence? Maybe I can't control it completely. Maybe I can influence something here. So say I'm worried about, um, well, say that I'm worried, for example, about, about COVID numbers. You were giving that example. Okay, that's something that's really, if that's something that is really a cause of concern for someone, there is an extent to which we have to accept the limitations of what we can control in that, but also the extent to which we can say, okay, maybe there's something for me that's really distressing for me. Where's my personal responsibility? What can I control? And also, potentially, do I need to think about the extent to which I expose myself to all that news, all that information, all that noise? And that'll be different for each of us. Where's that balance between being informed, taking responsibility, um, but at the same time, knowing where our cutoff is for what's workable for us so that we're informed, but we're not consumed and our anxiety not spiraling and keeping us in that physiological loop all of the time because that's not a good place to be okay fantastic folks you're listening to real health with me carl henry in association with layer healthcare we're delighted to join with dr rachel allen chatting all things anxiety today so if you want to help someone with anxiety presumably one of the key things is learning more about it and understanding more about it and that's a really key foundation to help anyone who is suffering from it absolutely you know i think for, for any of us when we when someone close to us is suffering the most natural response, you know, I mean, we've all been there, of course, when someone close to us is, is upset or distressed, we just want to make it go away. We just want to make them feel better. And one of the things that can happen, particularly with anxiety, is that sometimes when we're in that helping role, let's say it's my partner or, or grown-up child, and you're thinking, gosh, I just want to help. And I can see how certain things make anxiety worse for them well with the best will in the world you might try and reduce their anxiety by reducing their exposure 
to the things that cause anxiety. It makes sense and it comes from a really good place. But sometimes that's not always helpful when you really want to empower someone to overcome anxiety, to live better with anxiety. Sometimes that's not the best approach. So one of the really important steps to supporting someone to live better with anxiety is to get a little bit of an understanding of, sure, what anxiety is, where it comes from, but also what keeps it going. And often one thing that really does keep anxiety going is the stuff we do to try and not feel anxious. So let's say let's say that I'm afraid of dogs, right? And let's say that my husband wants me to feel better about that. So, you know, he might say, uh, with the best will in the world, well, we won't go to that park because there's loads of dog walkers there at this time of day. So we'll go, you know, we'll just stay home or we'll go here instead. That's a bit of a, that's a bit of a crude example, but you know what I mean? That we're kind of driven by that desire to just take the anxiety away. And that's not always the best way. There's a lot about that in the book about how we can gently, and it does have to be really gentle, really empathic, but gently support a loved one to build that tolerance to the thing that's that's fearful for them. And of course, listening is a huge tool as well. And I, I put my hand up as, uh, as 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 potentially not the best listener in the world. I'm a fixer. I try to fix everything. But as a, and sometimes listening is a much better, better thing to do than try to fix everything instantly uh, for, for with someone who is suffering from anxiety. So how can we be better listeners? You know, it's it's the most natural thing in the world to fix, isn't it? Because it's it's what we're you know it's it's such an essential skill in day to day life. The the number of little things we fix in a day. If my my lace opens, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna tie it back up. You know, we just fix things all the time. But that's not. You're right. It's not always the most helpful thing when we're talking about emotional stuff and 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 those kinds of conversations. In the book, I call that a different kind of conversation, where really we're almost it's almost like shifting gear. And really going into that listening stance. We don't listen. You're absolutely right. We don't we don't listen. And there's such a difference between, you know, that kind of heart half-hearted listening we all do. And we're sort of on the phone and going, oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I do that all the time. Uh, there's such a difference to that. And like really listening, not just to take in the information, not just to hear the content, but to actually allow yourself to connect emotionally with what the other person is saying I think that I think that's quite a gutsy thing to do in an everyday conversation you know say a friend maybe gets a bit upset or indicates to you that they've got something going on I think that's quite a gutsy thing to sort of step into that place because then you're making yourself vulnerable you know you, you you're opening yourself up and your own vulnerability to 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 hear that and to really let it touch you to let it move you um, how do we do that? Well, the most important thing is time, is to pause, state the intention. I really want to hear about it. Tell me about it. I want to understand. But resisting that urge to make it better initially is really important. Because when any of us takes the risk of sharing, of really sharing what's going on for us, when we're in a vulnerable place, that's a risky thing to do, even if it's with someone close to us. It's a big amount of trust involved. You know, and I'm sure maybe you can think of times this has happened in your own life where you've done that. 
you've shared something really sensitive or painful and the other person in a real well-meaning way has kind of told you to you know cheer up or or you know buckle up and, and get on with it kind of thing and we do it because we're trying to we're trying to help but if we are not able to stay in that mode of vulnerability and that mode of openness and really sharing emotion there is a risk that we're going to invalidate the person who's choosing to share with us so if we respond in that way what that might mean is that we actually instead of bringing them closer to us and nurturing the existing connection between us we actually risk putting further distance between us at a time where they've chosen to trust us so that bit of sitting with the uncomfortable being okay with not being okay and that's difficult you know I've, I've been a therapist for 15 years and I still find that difficult sometimes but it's really important for building that trust creating that safe experience for the person who's sharing so being a better listener is a huge tool, but also maybe asking some questions, uh, mm -hmm. even if those questions might be upsetting from the person who you love, who you're trying to help. Sometimes it is important to ask those questions, even if they are tough ones. Definitely important to ask questions and important to be up for understanding. You know, so if there's some, if you're, say your loved one is saying, oh, I'm, I'm panicking or I'm freaking out or I, I can't cope. Okay. Asking questions is a great way to help them open up, help them tell you, you know, what, is that, what does that mean? What's going on? What's that really like? What does that feel like in your body? These open exploratory questions are, are great because they, again, help move that conversation to a deeper level and really strengthen that, um, that space between you where the sharing can happen. And something we read about a huge amount, especially over the last, I suppose, year, year and a half, is, is the importance of breathing. And anxiety and the link between the two and I'm always intrigued to ask experts about these kind of things is it something that helps is it a fad does it work and what's your what's your thought on it do you know as a psychologist I'm always always <laughs> a little bit not embarrassed but a little bit self-conscious when I'm working with someone with anxiety because there's this sort of cliche just breathe you know just breathe do deep breathing breathe into a paper bag all that kind of thing that you see on on sitcoms and stuff and I'm always kind of conscious that someone's going to say to me, really, is that the best you've got? But truthfully, yes. Yes, it is. It's the best thing we've got. If you cast your mind back to what I was saying about the physiology of anxiety and how when we detect that threat in our environment, our physiology, bang, right away, sets off a whole series of responses that we know as anxiety. So the heart beating fast, the shortness of breath, the sweating, all that stuff that goes with anxiety. That is related to the change that happens in our breathing when we detect a threat in the environment. So by regulating our breathing, what we're actually doing is offsetting that physical threat response. So if you think of the threat response as being like the fire alarm of the body, so little part of the brain's like the smoke detector that sets off the fire alarm when threat is detected. And then all those physiological experiences that I was talking about there happen. And the fire alarm is going off in the body. Doing breathing in a controlled way, properly inhaling in 
and exhaling out regulates the body. It is the psychological and physiological equivalent of waving the dish towel in front of the smoke detector. It's the best thing we've got. So personally, always what I go to and it's always what I tell and encourage my clients and those close to me to use. Of course, we've got other things, but breathing is the best we've got. And for anyone listening in who either has anxiety or has a loved one with anxiety and thinks that, look, they may have tried some of the things we've talked about, obviously going to a professional is the next port of call or the next thing to do. They might be a little bit scared of maybe taking that step. Can you reassure them or maybe give them some tips around that, that it isn't as scary as people perceive it to be and that, that it is you know, incredibly beneficial to have a professional work with you or work with someone who has anxiety in your life? Mm-hmm. I think... You know, it's it's understandable, isn't it, that sort of thinking about approaching a professional, a lot of a lot of us battle with, gosh, what does that mean about me? What does that mean about how much I'm struggling? Does that mean I'm really unwell? Does that mean I'm going to get a label or a diagnosis? Um, but actually, there is there is a whole range of, of professionals out out there, and a whole range of different things um, on offer. You know, depending on where you are, health services. Um, will have different different things available and you can engage at different levels. So if speaking, you know, one-to-one with a professional might feel a little bit too much or too overwhelming, there's, there's good stuff out there. Self-help or the opportunity to, you know, as we're all doing sort of virtually now, to join in, to, to do a bit of learning about anxiety without actually having to sit and disclose your own difficulties, at least at first. You know, at the end of the day, I think we get we get into that sort of thing that, that we all do, making a distinction between the professionals and those who need to seek help. You're sort of the helper and the helpy, if you like. But it's important to remember we we all seek help somewhere. So yes, I'm the therapist, I'm the clinician for some people. But I'm also someone who has sought help myself and and probably will again at different points. So there isn't that black and white separation. And I think sometimes it's really important to kind of remind, remind others of that when they're thinking about seeking help, that actually the the person you're going to see is, is human and uh, is someone who, you know, has has their own life and their own difficulties and yes they'll they'll be qualified and they might be in a good position to really help you but at the end of the day it's another human being who knows suffering as well dr rachel i've really enjoyed getting to know you today and get to chat to you all the tips for our listeners are absolutely invaluable if they want to follow you on social media uh, where can they find you uh, instagram at rachel allen consultancy um that's kind of my main social media home i'm on facebook as well dr rachel m allen and uh, Twitter, Dr. Rachel M. Allen, but Instagram is where you want to find me. And remind us again the name of the book and, uh, and when it's out. How to Help Someone with Anxiety. It's a practical handbook and it is out now. Amazing. Dr. Rachel Allen, thank you so much for joining us today, folks. That's it for another episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. We are back next week for more Real Health. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review. And we'll see you next week for more Real Health. Slong Gafo. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.